Thank you for joining today's episode. Before we get started, just want to let you know the information provided in this episode is intended for a general audience and is not legal advice or a substitute for the advice of competent counsel. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. The content in this episode reflects the personal views and opinions of the participants. No attorney-client relationship is being created by this podcast and all rights are reserved. Now let's get on with the show. All right, welcome back to Inorganic. My name is Christian Hasselt. I am your host. I'm in the mobile podcast studio today coming to you from Silicon Valley. And today we're going to talk about a really fascinating subject, which is stock-based deals. Why are we going to talk about stock-based deals? In April of this year, Crunchbase ran an article that talked a lot about um, the likelihood that startups were going to be buying startups this year for a whole lot of reasons, including the current fundraising environment. And on the back of that, what we're seeing is um, data from Carta, which is a lot of companies are winding down. Carta is a sample of the market. There's something like 200 companies a month that are winding down right now. It's getting uh, pretty significant. And so if you're a, a founder who needs to find an exit, um, there's a lot of friends you have in the SaaS ecosystem that might be a, a great home for you. And if you are a company that's doing really well and you need something that one of those companies has, well, you might want to think about acquiring one of those startups. But we are in a market where cash is expensive to get right now and hard to get. And so a lot of companies are hesitant to raise additional cash. Um, so the traditional idea of deploying a lot of cash to do acquisitions is um, not the best idea. But stock is, is an instrument that a lot of sellers and increasingly investors are willing to take in deals to get companies into the right hands and um, give them a, another um, go at, at the future. And so today I have with me two great guests here to talk about um, both the, the deal environment and um, what kind of stock deals are getting done. Joining me today are Leslie Adamo, partner and vice chair of tax, and Meredith Bashaw, partner of emerging companies, both from Lowenstein Sandler. They're on the front lines doing the deals every day and have a great pulse on the market. So Leslie and Meredith, thank you so much for joining today. Thanks for having us. So if you wouldn't mind, just start real quickly um, with um, your backgrounds and a little bit about the firm. Um, Meredith, why don't you start? Sure. Um, I'm a partner in our emerging companies group, but I focus my practice on mergers and acquisitions for venture-backed companies. A lot of time that means exit transactions for these companies. Um, but this year we are seeing startups buying startups. Um, so we definitely wear both hats there. We also sometimes represent investors in venture-backed companies in connection with M&A exits. And in doing this, I work very closely with my partner, Leslie, because tax um, structure is really key in these deals. Hi, Leslie Adamo. Uh, I'm a partner in our tax group. Um, I'm a real business tax lawyer, so I work a lot with our venture capital clients, our founders and startups. I work with uh, our private equity group on M&A transactions there as well. I also work with bankruptcy, fund formation, I work with derivatives, et cetera. Um, Lowenstein is a full service firm, uh, so we have about 350 attorneys across five offices uh, and 
we, we do have a very large uh, ECVC practice, which is where Meredith sits and I think is going to be the focus today of our conversation. Yep. Thank you so much for um, the, the background. And again, welcome. I really appreciate you guys taking time to come on to the pod uh, and to speak to this audience. As um, my listeners know, um, there's a lot out there about M&A in public companies and large companies, but there's not a lot of dialogue out there about M&A in companies that are under $100 million in ARR. So today we're really talking about how do you get a deal done if the acquirer is 50 million in ARR and the acquired is 5 million in ARR, like, and you're trying to do a creative deal, like how do you get those, those deals done? So we're gonna do that today. I think to start just foundation, we should talk about, you know, what are the kinds of deals that you would do, um, meaning structure. Uh, um, so maybe if we could start Meredith with just laying that foundation for the audience. Sure. So when you talk about stock deals, I think what you really want to talk about Christian today is deals with stock consideration, but before yeah. we even get there, we have to think about what are you selling? And the options are you can sell all your assets or you can actually sell the equity of your company. And that could look like a merger structure or it might look like an equity sale, a stock purchase, for example. Um, there are a few things to think about there, but there's one big tax driver, which is if you are a C-Corp, which Leslie can talk about a little bit more. And if you have venture backing, you probably are. An asset deal is going to be tax inefficient. Um, so I always like to tell companies looking to sell, you need to understand the structure you're selling in before you have a handshake with the buyer. It will directly impact value. Um, there are other things that are different, but Leslie, should I pause there for you for a second? Yeah, absolutely. So generally startups, uh, especially venture-backed startups, are formed as C-corporations for a variety of reasons. Uh, the important point to note is if there is an asset sale by a C corporation, the proceeds from that sale are generally subject to two levels of tax, tax at the entity level and then tax again when the cash goes out to investors. So it's inefficient as compared to a stock sale, which is just subject to one level of tax, which is tax on the sale of the stock. Now, there's some caveats to that. So if the company has a lot of net operating losses um, or if the investors are able to get qualified small business stock benefits, which might be outside the scope of this conversation, um, sometimes an asset transaction might not be as tax inefficient as one might think at the get-go. The bottom line is if you get a term sheet for an asset sale, you absolutely need to talk to a tax advisor, even if it's an all-cash deal, uh, because you might be signing yourself up to pay a lot more taxes than you would if you did a stock sale. So you might want to use the, the term sheet stage as an opportunity to ask for a gross up or say you need another uh, deal structure because it's not going to work for you. I caveat that with like, if you get a term sheet for an asset purchase, um, there's sometimes higher order reasons why that is. There may be something about the company, something that was learned prior to the receipt of, uh, of the term sheet that they said, look, we're, we're concerned about a problem of some kind. Maybe it's, you know, the the financials of the company aren't super clean or you're doing three things in this company. We only want to buy one of those things. There's a whole bunch of reasons why asset deal might come into play. 
Um, so there's there's higher order questions about why you got asset, um, but but I think it's a great point. It's like the just to be mindful of what it means when you if you do decide to do the asset deal. And Leslie, I'm sorry, Meredith, what what were you going to add to that? I was going to add is it can be simpler to do an asset deal. It can be faster, which everyone wants, especially for smaller deals. Yeah. But it's important to understand the economic difference if there's going to be one before yeah. going down that path. Yeah, and Christian, to your point about the reasons for an asset purchase that a stock uh, that a um, purchaser might be specifically interested in for proposing that structure, you're exactly right. And sometimes there are some pre-transaction structurings a seller can do to make themselves more attractive to a buyer, but also in a tax advantageous structure for the seller. Yeah, got it. Um... Okay, well, why don't we, with that foundation laid, um, let's just talk about what kind of stock deals are actually getting done in this market. And I'll start with, you know, the first big question that everyone's asking, which is, can I just do a 100% stock deal or 100% stock deals happening? Yes or no? Yeah, they are, but only for companies that have enough cash on hand to pay their debt and transaction expenses themselves. It's very common in M&A for a selling company to not be able to pay with the cash on the books, the debt, the transaction expenses, in which case a buyer would pay off those amounts for the seller and reduce the purchase price dollar for dollar based on those amounts. Um, we've seen it this year, companies that have raised have enough money and do that. Um, but I think more frequently, we at a minimum see buyers putting in cash to cover seller's debt and expenses. Um, would you agree with that, Leslie? Yeah, I, I agree with that. And then again, it goes back to tax structure. And you just want to make sure from a tax perspective um, that the transaction, you know, what the mix of cash and, and stock is deemed to be when determining whether or not you have a tax-free reorganization. Um, because as soon as you see some cash and some stock coming across the table, you have to think about it not being purely a stock deal from a tax perspective. Now, if I'm an acquiring CEO and I'm looking at my CFO, like we're the acquirer, and I'm looking at uh, debt on the balance sheet or other impairments that exist uh, in the company, I'm, I might take the position that, look, that, this is the company may or may not have the cash, but that's the investor's problem. They need to figure it out. Is that a position that is actually getting a deal over the line? Or at the end of the day, is the acquirer having to, to put cash on the table to take care of that in order to get a deal done? Yeah. So acquirers definitely want to see debt and expenses paid because they don't want to be responsible for them after the deal. Um, right. So if an acquirer is buying equity, certainly they become directly responsible for all liabilities of the company. So if they buy a company with outstanding debt, if it, usually that debt repayment is triggered by a change of control itself, right? So if they're not charging the sellers for it, they're just going to have to pay it later. Even in an asset deal where you could try to pick and choose, I'll take this liability, but not that liability. I won't take liability for any debt or expenses, there's a su successor liability risk to buyers when they're buying all the assets that they could actually get stuck with those bills. So I really don't see buyers coming in and saying, yeah, we're just going to leave that debt outstanding. They, they want it paid off. You do sometimes see 
different deals cut with debt holders. Maybe they'll take less than a hundred cents on a dollar to get something. Um, but I don't see them being ignored. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I was more saying like, are they saying, look, you venture capital backer of this company, company like we're going to buy this company and we're going to take it off of your hands, but you need to t- need to satisfy this debt in order for us to close the transaction. Are you seeing anybody really take that position? Kind of request because VCs aren't looking to take money out of their own pocket to get a deal done. Yeah, got it. And, and so then um, what just back to the spirit of what is actually getting done as a general rule, I mean, not a rule uh, as a trend, um, are you seeing 50, 50, are you seeing 70, 30, like uh, without being overly prescriptive and then having someone say Meredith and Leslie said, um, if you were to look at the sample size, the last 10 deals you've done, what is a percentage mix you're seeing actually get over the line? So I'm going to throw this to Leslie in just a second, which she knows I'm about to do. What we're trying to avoid in these deals is having sellers receive a tax bill for illiquid stock that they've just received. So it's very important to get the mix of cash and stock right to be a tax-free reorganization so that you don't, and we've seen term sheets that would have left founders with a bigger tax bill than the cash they're receiving. And different deal structures have different requirements, which is why I'm hoping Leslie can walk us through exactly what's necessary. Yeah, that'd be great. So, so Meredith's exactly right. A lot of what we spend our time doing is ensuring that the equity portion of the transaction is not subject to tax, right? So there's a quote, tax-free role, as we call it. Depending on the deal structure, this can range from needing anywhere between 40% to 80% at least stock consideration. Um, sometimes there's the rare circumstance where because of buyer structure, you need less than that and any equity received is received tax deferred. But generally, the structures we're seeing, you need at least 40% uh, to be stock consideration. Now, what's important to note is you don't want to be at 40%. You need to give yourself a healthy cushion because valuations are somewhat subjective. And the other issue is it comes into play is how are you going to value the stock, right? So we're looking for tax purposes at true valuation, fair market value of the stock. As everyone here knows, the 409A value is a valuation that a company will get um, from a valuation company as to the value of its common stock. In a transaction, sometimes you'll see deal terms where the equity consideration to be paid in the transaction is common stock, but being valued at something other than the 409A. So getting valued at the preferred price or getting valued at some multiple uh, of EBITDA or something like that, but not necessarily the 409A value. And that puts a lot of tax pressure on the transaction if you're near that 40% line, uh, depending on the deal structure. So we have to be very careful about valuation for the stock and tax lawyers are always thinking about what is the true value of the stock being paid in the deal. Yeah, I'll get, I wanna get back to that one second, but you said something earlier, I just wanna double click on. You said the, the stock mix needed to be, or could uh, ideally is 40 to 60%, I think you said but you said that could be lower depending on buyer structure. Can you just double click on what you mean by buyer structure? Sure, so sometimes if buyer, let's take a simple example, if buyer's starting, forming, if buyer's an LLC, let's start there. If buyer's yeah. an LLC taxed as a partnership, 
it could be the case that any equity contributed into buyer structure can be received for, for buyer equity in the LLC could be received tax-free because there's not mm. like an ownership threshold by contributing owners. If a new C corporation is being formed in connection with the transaction and buyers funding that new C corporation with cash at the same time that equity is rolling into it, it could also be the case that you don't need a certain threshold of equity to be paid over to the sellers. However, if buy, if this is like an acquisitive reorganization where buyer is an existing corporation and it's going to be paying some of its stock to the sellers, you might, depending on how the transaction structured, so which of the reorganizations it falls into, you're going to need somewhere more than 40% if you do one type of reorganization or more than 80% if you do a different type of the consideration to be stock. So it's like fully dependent on, on uh, the structure of the transaction and the specifics. And the trend I generally see there is if you have a financial buyer, if private equity is buying you, you're more likely to be able to have lower amounts of stock consideration. They more often have LLCs in the structure. If you have a strategic buyer, you're going to need more stock consideration. And if it's an asset deal, that's when you need 80% stock consideration. If they're buying equity, there are different structures we can use where we might be able to get it lower, 60 or 40, yeah. but not with an asset deal. Is that right, Leslie? So, so the, bo the bottom line is anytime there's equity consideration being paid by buyer, seller should be receiving tax advice as to whether that equity consideration will be received tax-free. And sometimes yeah. there are small tweaks that can be done to deal structure um, to fix the problem, right? Uh, and yeah. Not. Um, yep. and, and where there's not, that's where the tougher conversations come in. But the issue that we see often is sellers are not always getting tax advice at the, t at the term sheet stage. And it's really hard to, after a term sheet has been signed, to then later introduce these issues. And I'd say for buyer, and we represent buyer, whenever they're trying to propose uh, any equity consideration being paid, we try to issue spot this for the seller ahead of time as well and point it out to the buyer because it becomes a, a, a issue for the entire deal, right? If seller's not receiving their equity tax deferred. So I actually want to double click here for a second and just kind of talk to the listeners. What I see happen a lot of times in, in smaller companies is they say, all right, I want to acquire this company. And someone goes and gets a term sheet that, um, you know, Atlassian famously has a term sheet posted on the web, copy and paste it. I'm going to write up my own term sheet and get it started because I want to save on the first round of legal fees, I don't even know if they're gonna take uh, this deal I do. And so being scrappy and creative and getting the first term sheet out in a stock-based deal um, presents a lot of risk for exactly what we're talking about here. And um, and then the second uh, point is, is that, um, you know, one thing you wanna do, if you're really trying to solve, um, you know, getting ahead of, uh, are there going to be um, sort of uh, points of rub where there's going to be a disconnect between the buyer and the seller? The right thing to do is to, if you want to uh, preempt the lawyer is actually get the investors to talk to one another. 
because the investors will are, usually know the kinds of structures that can be done um, and they can be a good sniff test before you take it to lawyer. Now, if you're going to go from term sheet um, that you're actually going to want to execute, you should absolutely bring it to counsel um, and and transactional counsel versus um, a, 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 a business lawyer. Um, but I have my question for you, Leslie and Meredith, is um, it's my experience that um, M&A counsel typically does understand these tax issues. So can we count on them to bring in tax counsel or do we as the, the buyer or the seller need to say, hey, thanks for all this, but will you please actually bring someone from tax on the line? I just want to make sure this is going to work. What's your advice? So I would just say at a firm that's full service, like a bigger firm, the M&A lawyers are always working with the tax lawyers and you just, we're always looking, they're always bringing it to the tax group. So if Meredith's reviewing a term sheet and it has equity consideration, she's never not speaking to one of her tax partners about the term sheet. There's someone's eyes always on it. We can't speak to what happens at other firms. And if you're certainly at a smaller firm, um, where you're not sure whether or not they have tax counsel there, because it's not the case that every smaller firm does, you might want to specifically ask the question. I, I agree with that. If you're not using a full service firm, you need to be asking the question. Also, if you're in the habit, even at a larger firm of you know interacting day to day with a more junior associate, which is often a very good idea for younger companies, just to flag, hey, this is when please bring partner in for me. Um, you need senior level advice here and you need tax advice. And just like a tug, a, a total uh, plug for tax lawyers, we're not, it doesn't take us a long time to review a term sheet to spot these issues. We are all very familiar with these term sheets and the issues presented. So, you know, just having a tax lawyer's eyes at the term sheet stage on the term sheet, I'd say is is wise because it's not super expensive and it could save you obviously tons of money down the line. All right, good double click there. Um, I wanna go back now to uh, the stock conversation. One element of the stock conversation is, let's say that you're doing a transaction where some portion of the um, tender is preferred and some portion of the tender is common and the common is intended to be used to um, create an option pool for the employees. The first question I have is, can I just give common to the acquired employee base or do I need to do something else? So it's, it's very common to have an option pool that gets issued after a deal to the employees. That is not gonna be deal consideration and in fact, anything that only goes to employees rather than all common holders is going to be taxed at ordinary income. It, it's compensation. Um, that said, we see it all the time in addition to deal consideration. But this comes up a lot, right? Not all, if you're talking about options, it's certainly comp then and it's after the deal. But we get asked all the time, you know, can the earn out only be paid to employees rather than the full cap table? And the answer is, well, if you do that, it's not really a deal earnout anymore. It's consideration. So you get taxed as if it's consideration. Yep. But the reason why I asked that question though is it's like the buyer saying, I want to pay $10 for this company. I'm just going to use a low round number, right? And I want two of those dollars um, to come out of the transaction 
the 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 deal consideration and i want that two dollars to be allocated to the common pool because the common pool is not going to participate in this this deal they're not going to get anything and i want them to get something but i don't want to take that out of my pocket after the deal i want that to be a part of the the headline deal amount so like can i then say i will i will issue um I, um, ISOs or something uh, to as a part of the the tender, and those ISOs can then be distributed to the common. Is that a a, a, a way a way you can work around it? So I guess what I'll say is any amounts, whether it's in stock, ISOs, RSAs, RSUs, options that go just to or primarily to service providers and are not being paid in respect of the equity those service providers are are selling in the transaction is always going to be compensation. Now, whether or not that compensation is taxed right when the transaction occurs or later on depends on the form of that incentive equity, right? So some things like options are not taxed right away, but they're taxed when they're exercised, right? Uh, just straight up stock that's not subject to vesting restrictions, so unrestricted stocks taxed right away. If it's subject to vesting restrictions, maybe, you know, if you make an A3B election that accelerates the tax, et cetera. So then you just have to really think hard about the type of incentive equity being given. And this is another point that often comes up in the term sheet stage is um, sellers need to very much be aware of any incentive equity that's being issued, the form it takes, the conditions attached to it, and have to think hard about what the tax consequences are going to be and when they should negotiate those terms. Yeah. I mean, the reason why I bring it up is like, if you think about, let's think about a deal where you're, you do a stock based stock heavy deal, which actually works out to be a good deal for whatever reason for the acquired. And all of a sudden um, the it's, it's a stock, it's a, a large stock deal. And now, some of the common who's been there for a long time is all of a sudden getting stock as consideration, right? So um, what that means for the audience is awesome to get this stock as consideration, but now you have to pay tax on it. Yeah, if, if right? the common holders are receiving equity from buyer for their, because it represents value for the equity yeah. they hold, that, that can be received tax-free depending on the structure. The issue is where there's an, a value shift. So if you just liquidated the, val, the the company a moment in time before the transaction, let's say all the consideration would go just the preferred because you're not going to clear the preference stack, but you decide in the deal to give something to common because they're really a bunch of founders or other key mm -hmm. employees and you want them to feel loved, that's going to be taxable. But if you liquidate the company a moment in time before and the common was actually going to get something, in the deal and then they get consideration commensurate with that that's not a value shift so that might be able to be received tax-free got it so there's a little there's there's a little bit of extra nuance there but what i was just going to say was let's say for some awesome reason that you're actually clearing the preference stack mm -hmm. and now stock consideration is going to the common mm -hmm. right that is a taxable event right not necessarily, no. That could be tax-free to the common holders if it would be otherwise tax-free because of the deal structure. Okay. That's where we so won't have enough stock in the deal. Got it. Got yeah. it. So that, that's, that's the trick is, is that you have enough stock in the deal 
then you can actually make it tax-free and you can put common in their hands. Now, the acquirer is now going to say, yeah, but I actually want to make sure that these employees are um, going to be with us post-deal. So now I need to put some more on top and I need to put vesting in place and actually create an option pool. And I might want to put that in the transaction as well. So that might end up being another um, element of the of the structure. Is that true? Yeah, what I'll say is let's go back to the example we just gave where yeah. everyone's getting money in the deal because the value of this target company is such that everyone get paid um, if it was just sold for cash on that day. Uh, it could be the case that buyer says, okay, everyone's getting, let's say, 85% stock, 15% cash for their equity, right? And But the buyer might say, but for those key employees that are receiving equity, their equity is subject to vesting restrictions, even though no one else's is. That happens sometimes. And then the individuals who are receiving buyer equity that's subject to vesting conditions need to usually file an 83B election to avoid tax later when their equity is vesting. So you have to, as soon as there's any vesting conditions or any other conditions that cause the stock to be subject to substantial risk of forfeiture, like reverse vesting, um, need to get tax advice right away because if an 83B election needs to be made, you only have 30 days to do it from the date of grant of, of that equity. And so it's really important for it to be timely uh, filed. And term sheets do lay this out. It's pretty common for a term sheet to say, a deal is for $100 million, but it's 80 million to stockholders and it's 20 million option pool at the time of closing. Um, and that should be disclosed to investors. Investors will have to approve it to avoid excise taxes on the founders. But Leslie's right there, you know, that's the carrot for the team. The stick might be, and by the way, founders, the stock you're getting is consideration. You've got to actually stick around at the company for a couple of years to get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So that I think that structure is out there. That's the capitalization of it. Okay. I want to switch gears to um uh, uh, a separate topic, and that is uh, the the hot topic of uh, from 2021-2022, valuations are down. If, if, how are buyers and sellers resolving their differences in terms of, you know, you, you're saying my stock isn't worth what it is because my company isn't growing as fast since the last time I raised money, and the acquirer is saying we raised at a $500 million valuation and yeah, the market's down a little bit, but it's, but we're still doing really great. So like how are buyers and sellers sort of resolving differences around the value of the actual stock being traded, setting aside the 409A? So they're resolving it only if the sellers aren't, are savvy enough to say at the term sheet stage, I need to understand what I'm getting. Right. So if sellers sign one of those short form term sheets, they're going to get stuck with what they get stuck with. Um, mm. You know, for the most part, buyers who have leverage are going to be paying in common stock, not in preferred stock. But that's not always the case. And they're going to try to do it at the 409i, which may be a little bit high. Um, but I do no, see. Preferred, right? 
to preferred, you mean? Right. Yeah. Well, they'd love to do it at the preferred price, right? If they have the yeah. leverage yeah. to do that, that's yeah. that's going to be their first yeah. ad, right? Common stock yeah. at the preferred price. Fallback is common at the 409A, which also might be high still, depending on when they got it. Um, the middle ground I'm seeing this year is agreeing that the same multiple that applies to seller will apply to buyer and it's a mutually agreed value. That's really hard to value for tax purposes to see if you have enough stock in the deal. Mm -hmm. um, and we're seeing the same, you know, in the rare instances where buyers are agreeing to give preferred stock in deals, the last round price may or may not make sense. Are you seeing buyers at a fairly high rate put preferred stock on the table as tender or are they mostly using common? Mostly common, um, but not always. Got it. And if so, if it's common, it's like preferred is like highly valuable stock. So that taking preferred at exactly last raise number, you know, that's pretty defensible because it's valuable stock for common. It's harder. So is that that's where you're seeing uh, the conversation around? Well, what is the value of that stock? And you're saying that the buyer and seller are agreeing on a multiple that they both will take on in valuing the, com the, the traded common? Yes, I'm seeing that sometimes. When we see preferred being used, it's for acquisition of a company that has actually done a, a financing round, not just to save, right? Um, yeah. They have preferred stock outstanding, and it's really to preserve the amount of preference for their investors. It does create a more complicated, expensive, time-consuming deal to put into place, because then you're doing preferred and common as consideration, not only preferred. Um, but yes, for, for common, we are seeing those kinds of negotiations happening in the current market. All right. Super interesting. Um, we're getting to the, um, the the top of the hour, so we need to start wrapping up. Um, I think that where I want to land is like, what are the one or two common deal killers that are happening in the current climate? Things that are extending deal time or just getting deals, not getting deals over the line. If you could just um, maybe Meredith and Leslie give kind of your one each of What's, what's getting in the way of getting deals done right now? Meredith, you start. Sure. Um, well, when we get term sheets that are broken from a tax perspective, it's hard to make those into deals. Um, when you tell founders they're going to get a bill bigger than the amount of cash they're going to receive. And the other is there's a lot of structure. As we've talked about, you know, are you using preferred stock? Are you using common stock? What's the pricing of the stock? They're just taking a long time to negotiate, sometimes longer than the cash runway that companies have on hand. So, you know. Complexity is not our friend, and yet it's what we're seeing in the current market. So does that mean the company is winding down? Like, it's just like, we can't wait this out anymore. We're just going to wind down or the investors that, are... That or you just start folding on all the material terms because you're out of leverage when you're out of cash. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, got it. And Leslie? Mine was going to be Meredith's first one, so... I just, uh, I'm going to vote for that. <laughs> You're going to double down on that. Yes. Out of a pool of 10 deals in the last quarter, how many deals are getting over the line as a sample? Um, probably seven. You know, and, and M&A is different from financings in that it's never 100%. M&A is more likely to bust after a term sheet than a financing deal. Um, and I think we're seeing slightly higher rates of that than we would in a better market, but we're still seeing deals get to closure. Uh, but were you, were you answering that in the frame of um, uh, M&A and financing? And I was really asking M&A. Ah, okay, got it. All right, cool. So you're saying seven out of 10 M&A deals are getting done 
uh, you know, roughly 70% of deals are getting done. They're just taking longer. That's been my experience in this market. Leslie, is your similar? Yeah, same. And a lot longer. Uh, I also work a lot with our private equity practice. I'm seeing the same there. Uh, Deals are taking a very long time, sometimes dying and coming back. And it's certainly a weird market. Cool. Well, uh, look, I I really appreciate both of you coming on the pod today. You enlightened us. I think if it's one thing that I've taken away from this episode is that tax is a super complicated topic (laughs) and you absolutely need a tax attorney. Uh, But I hope that what we did here is maybe shed some light on the reasons why and maybe some things to think about before you get to just cutting that first term sheet, having some informed conversations about structure and about um, you know, and also among the investors about, you know, what is the kind of deal that it's possible to get done? Just getting ahead of those things um, that um, can save time and cost and ultimately help get the deal over the line. Meredith and Leslie, thank you so much for joining me today. And thank you uh, to my listeners for joining us for another episode of Inorganic. If you enjoyed this conversation, please do like and subscribe. And we'll look forward to seeing you next time. Thanks. Thanks.